My name is Adam Sandwick. I have the privilege of serving as an elder here at Enidimbi Church, and I have an even greater privilege of preaching the word this morning. I'm glad to be with you. Uh, so, brief introduction. On March, March 30, 1961, in a speech given before the Phoenix Chamber of Commerce, Ronald Reagan, while he was working for the company GE as a company spokesman and a motivational speaker, uh, in his speech remarked that freedom is never more than one generation away from extinction. We didn't pass it on to our children in the bloodstream. The only way they can inherit the freedom we have known is if we fight for it, protect it, defend it, and then hand it to them with the well-thought lessons of how they in their lifetime must do the same. And if you and I don't do this, then you and I may well spend our sunset years telling our children and our children's children what it once was like in America when men were free. So this speech, in it, is, he touched on a lot of topics from socialism, uh, communism, capitalism hot topics at the time, the space race that was going on, uh, before he ended with this reminder about freedom. He would go on in his life and career and repeat this same thought and same idea about freedom being a generation away from extinction numerous times. Uh, and here recently, maybe not recently, but in recent church history, numerous Christian speakers, authors, and scholars have adopted this idea, and they say that the church or Christianity is never more than one generation away from extinction. They do this in order to highlight our role in teaching and discipling the next generation of believers, because a life devoted to Christ is not inherited. Uh, I'm not here to debate whether the church really is a generation away from extinction. It's just a way to think about what we're going to talk about today. But church history, as we look back, is marked by a pattern of a generation that believes the gospel. Subsequent generations will assume the gospel, and then following generations may even deny the gospel. For example, let's take a brief look at Mennonite history. I got all this information from USMB.org. The Mennonites were born out of the Reformation in the 1500s. Through the teachings of Menno Simons, he was a former Catholic priest who started studying the New Testament for himself after having doubts about his religious traditions. So note, he found himself caught in this believe, assume, deny cycle. In his studies, uh, he aligned himself most closely with the Anabaptists on three truths. The Bible is the authority in matters of faith, not the church. The Lord's Supper is a memorial commemorating Christ's redemptive sacrifice, not a re-sacrifice of his flesh and blood. And baptism is an act of faithful discipleship, not a christening event designed to make children Christians. Now looking back, it's strange for us to see how those positions would be positions that would uh, merit persecution. But that's how the church at that time had slipped gradually. And so the Mennonites, over the next couple hundred years, they continue to grow under persecution and even relocation uh, geographically. And until, unfortunately, by the mid-1800s, the Mennonite church started to look more like the European state church of the 1500s, where church membership was a prerequisite for certain privileges like uh, voting, land ownership, or marriage. There's no personal commitment to Jesus required for baptism. Church leaders acted more like civic authorities, with many showing no signs of personal discipleship. There were growing divisions in the church between the wealthy and the poor classes. There was a sense that participating in the ordinances of the Lord's Supper and baptism 
replace the need for disciplined Christian living. And there is a general lack of discipline, counseling, and care that came from the church. And so there was a man that came along and a, uh, spurred a type of revival. His name was Edward Woost, and it continued even after his death. And a group of Mennonites returned to the Anabaptist foundations of the church that were rooted in the New Testament. And this group became the Mennonite Brethren in 1860. Started very small. They broke from the Mennonites. They cited abuses they saw in baptism, the Lord's Supper, church discipline, and pastoral leadership and lifestyle. So our own denomination serves as both proof and warning to us that we must be actively involved in discipling not only ourselves, but the next generations in order that we don't stray from gospel truths. So we're going to go to our passage today. If you'll turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 6, we're going to read verses 1 through 9. If you don't have a Bible with you, we have hard black back, hard back black Bibles in chairs around you. This is page 151. Uh, brief aside, we have a sticker in the front of this. It says, if you don't own a Bible at EMB, we believe that God's word is the primary means of our personal discipleship. We encourage you to take this with you and grow in your knowledge of Jesus by reading his word. We say that from the pulpit from time to time, and a few weeks ago uh, it was said, and so at our house we give our children their very first Bible when they turn five, and so we have one of our daughters that's four, and she's approaching five, but she heard that, and she may, she really doesn't pick up much in the service, but uh, she heard that, and so she was really bent on bringing home a black, hardback black Bible, so... The first Sunday, I kind of distracted her and left it in the, in the chair. Boy, we got home and that didn't go over very well. And so she brought it home and uh, needless to say, she'll be turning five shortly and we'll, re- we'll return the hardback black one. But read with me. This is Deuteronomy chapter 6, uh, verses 1 through 9. This is, Moses is writing this inspired by the Holy Spirit. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So, We're taking a short break from our Colossians sermon series, actually today and next Sunday. When I was asked to fill in on this Sunday, I was in the middle of teaching through the book of Judges in our middle school and high school boys Sunday school class, and I was also in the book of Deuteronomy, my personal Bible reading and study time. And I was starting to see uh, connections between those two books, between what was commanded of the Israelites in Deuteronomy, how they disregarded those commands and warnings, and the devastation that was caused during the period of the Judges. This passage that we're looking at today kept popping up in my studies, and so I chose to preach from it. 
Very brief background, Deuteronomy is the fifth book of what we call the Pentateuch. That word just means five books or five scrolls. It's the first five books of the Bible. They're all written by Moses, and it uh, gives us the historical and spiritual account of God's people, the Israelites, from the time of creation up until Moses' death, just before they crossed the Jordan River to the Promised Land. An easy way to think about Deuteronomy is that the word literally means second law. And so that should help us remember that this is Moses reminding or repeating God's law to the Israelites just before they're crossing into the promised land. So our passage today, chapter 6, comes just after Moses has repeated the Ten Commandments in Deuteronomy chapter 5. And it's going to begin a stretch of chapters that he's going to expound on these Ten Commandments uh, in more detail. Chapter 6, he's actually going to address the first two commandments and talk a little bit more about them. You shall have no other gods before God, and you shall worship no other gods. We're going to break it up like this. Verses 1 through 3, we're going to look at the purpose of the commandment. Verses 4 and 5, the essence of the commandment. Essence, just the most significant element of the commandment. And then verses 6 through 9, our responsibility to the commandment. I'll give it to you now. Our responsibility to the commandment is discipleship, and we're going to spend a bulk of time talking about that. And as we use the word commandment here, it should be taken as the collective of all of God's law, all of his commands that he's given to us. We're not looking at one specific. When the word in 6.1, it says, now this is the commandment modified there by the statutes and the rules, he's echoing what he said earlier. Deuteronomy 5.1 also mentions all the statutes and rules. Deuteronomy 5.31, if you go up a couple lines, it says, I will tell you the whole commandment and the statutes and the rules that you shall teach them. So when we talk about the purpose of the commandment, the essence of the commandment, and our responsibility to the commandment, it's the entirety of God's law. It's not just one point or one specific commandment. So verses 1 through 3, the purpose of the commandment, when God is going through, Moses is repeating this, why he's telling the Israelites this. The purpose is obedience out of reverence for God. God will and has continued to remind the Israelites that he has called them out to be a unique people for him on mission. Obedience out of reverence for God. Look, he says here that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your sons and your sons' sons. But fear the Lord your God by keeping his statutes and his commandments. He wants his people to revere him, and that means to have the proper view of who he is. So the purpose of the commandment has nothing to do with their deliverance. They've already been delivered out of bondage to slavery. He's already delivered them. There was nothing conditional about their deliverance. He didn't go to them and say, if you'll obey me, then I'll deliver you. He's already delivered them. And at this point, it's after their deliverance that the command and the law comes. Exodus 19, 4 through 6, he says, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So Israel is called out to have the right view of God, called out to be priests. Priests are people who tell other people about God. So this is a version of what we call the Great Commission that Jesus, we refer to what Jesus gave at the end of his life. Christians or believers telling other people about God. So God's desire, the purpose of the commandment, is obedience out of reverence, respect, and love. Not simply doing what we think we need to do to avoid his 
discipline or his punishment. So this is important to think about. We heard a little bit last week, our view of God or our convictions feeds our obedience or feeds our conduct. It's not, that our, it's not our obedience that feeds our proper view of God. Proverbs 1.7 says the same thing. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is what we're talking about. Reverence, respect, and love. A proper view of God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning. The beginning being the controlling or the first principle of wisdom. Wisdom, not just knowledge, but it's the right use of knowledge. Right living. So verse 1, it says, these are what we're giving you to, that you can do them in the land you're going over to possess, right? The first time they received the law, they were wandering in the desert. It's not just a desert wandering law. This is what their command, these are their guiding principles going into their land of freedom, right? So uh, as believers, when we're delivered, that's not the end of growing in obedience and right view of God. He's, he's given us Uh, his commands, that we may have the right view of him. Another thing that I wanted to point out here, Moses is giving us a good example as we teach others how to teach. He says, these are the commandments, this is the commandment, the statutes and laws, that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you. So he's not teaching them what Moses wants them to know, or Moses' thoughts, or Moses' opinions. He's faithful to teach them God's word only, what God gave him to teach. He also sets us a good example for preaching or exhorting. If you look in chapter 3, he says, Hear Israel and be careful to do them. He's calling the people to obedience from his position uh, uh, where he's authority over them, but he's calling them with strong urging. And so the purpose of the commandment is the right view of God that feeds our obedience. Verses 2 and 3 talk a lot about the blessings that would come out of their obedience. Don't confuse the purpose of the commandment with blessing. It's not blessing. Blessing is a positive consequence of the commandment. To the Israelites, God's blessings would come in the form of long life, peace and protection, prosperity, and numerous descendants. So for, God, for us, God doesn't promise the same tangible blessings like this. There are blessings to be had in obeying Him. That may look like contentment or peaceful relationships in your life. Certainly freedom from bondage of sin and slavery to sin. But don't confuse earthly prosperity with God's blessings. As in, this is his side of the bargain. God may choose to bless in this way. But what happens if he hasn't blessed you with prosperity? Does that cause you to doubt God and his promises or think that Somebody else's faith is of greater worth than yours because they have X, Y, and Z that you don't have X, Y, and Z. Rather, in the same way that the New Testament looks back through the Old Testament lens, through the cross, and sees Christ as the fulfillment of these Old Testament images, like Christ is the greater priest, Christ is the greater prophet, he's the greater sacrifice, we're to look to Christ as the greater blessing. He's the more satisfying blessing than comfort on earth, than prosperity on earth, than longevity of life on earth. And so this should be great news for those of us that suffer through trials in our life, whether it's sickness or pain, chronic, whether it's abandonment or betrayal, uh, or just a general sadness in your circumstances in life. Those are not a reflection of God's blessing on you. His blessing is in Jesus Christ. Uh, 
Jesus even himself talks about an idea that we obey that it may go well with you, right? In the Sermon on the Mount, I can think of a couple examples where he talks about there's the narrow path and the wide path. Many follow the wide path that leads to death, but the narrow path, obedience to him, leads to life. Or he says, like the foolish man that built his house on the sand, when the trials and temptations came in life, it was crumbled, it was nothing, he came to nothing. Or the wise man that built his house on the rock was the one that heard the word of God, obeyed the word of God, and was sustained in the middle of that. So faith, it's not the antidote to persecution. The same storm came, persecution may still come, but faith gives us the hope to endure the persecution because what we were promised exceeds what happens to us. So this idea in Scripture that disobedience to God leads to death and obedience to his command leads to life, it should cause us to lose heart because on our own, none of us are capable of obeying God's commands. Even You can't say to yourself, I'm mostly obedient. James, in the book of James, says that even if you break just a little part of the commandment, you're guilty of breaking the whole commandment. And so that's the bad part of the good news we heard a few weeks ago in our Colossians sermon series, that we can't live up to God's standard of perfect obedience, right? But the good news of the good news is we don't have to be the ones that live up to that. Jesus Christ, again, as we look back through the lens of the cross, Jesus Christ was the perfect obedient one to God's will, and he perfectly obeyed God's commandment. So he provides the covering or the atonement for us where we disobeyed and deserved death. Um, So look to Christ as the fulfillment of the command where we couldn't obey it. So just to repeat, the purpose of the commandment is the right view or reverence of God that leads to our obedience. Obedience out of reverence for God. Verses 4 and 5, the essence of the commandment. Remember, essence is just the most significant element of a thing. The most significant is, who is God? So verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This specific phrase came to be known as uh, the Shema prayer. It was a central prayer in the life of a Jew. It's continuing even to this day. It's repeated multiple times each day. It's a reminder that uh, we serve one God. Uh, He is the one and only. There is no other beside him. He is not one option of many options, so the lie that all religions lead to heaven. And he is not the only one worthy of our worship among the many other gods that are out there. Think about in mythology where there are just a pantheon of gods, but there's only one above who is above all. Um, that's not the case with our God. He is the one, and he is the only Everything else that sets itself up as a God, a lowercase g God, comes from the mind of man and leads to death. Uh, You can turn there if you want. This is Psalm 115. I'm going to read verses 4 through 8. The psalmist talking about idols. He says, Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. 
This idea of one God that was setting apart, making the, the God's chosen people unique, setting them apart, uh, was what was unique and set them apart. Uh, I'm a little nervous about this next part because uh, I won't ask for a show of hands, but I'm fairly certain most of you don't think that I'm a language scholar, Greek scholar, Hebrew scholar. But I did a lot of study on this passage, and so I was excited. I found one little language nugget that I wanted to share with you. Uh, but don't hear me say this and think that I have to go study languages to understand the Bible. Like the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit alone opens the eyes of our hearts. All of us, the Scripture has all we need for life and godliness. I just wanted to share this because I was encouraged by it myself. In the Hebrew language there, when it says, The Lord our God, the Lord is one, the word means a compound unity. There are other instances that it shows up in the Old Testament that point to this. In Genesis 1, when it's talking about creation, it says, evening and morning made one day. That's the same word. In Genesis 2, it says, the man and the woman, the two, became one flesh. That was the same word that was used there. And in Exodus 26, it's talking about setting up the tabernacle. It says, all the clasps that hold all the curtains together make the the tent or the tabernacle, one. It's the same word. It's a compound unity. So this supports the theology of the Trinity. Terrell prayed about it. We sang about it. The idea of three persons, one essence, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So when we say the Lord our God, the Lord is one, we are not denying that truth about God. So that's who God is. Verse 5 is our duty. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Jesus calls this the greatest commandment in Matthew 22 uh, when he was asked. In fact, he said that this, along with love your neighbor as yourself, which was another commandment from Leviticus, sum up and encapsulate all of God's law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, and love your neighbor as yourself. Heart, soul, and might is just a way of saying that with all that we have and all we are, it's wholehearted, undivided affection. One theologian uh, his name is C.J.H. Wright. He wrote, One might thus render the entire verse, Love the Lord your God with total commitment, that's your heart, with total self, that's your soul, to total excess with all your might. Uh, and another theologian wrote about this, Both the focus on the exclusive devotion to the one true God and the command to love this God of Israel rest on God's faithful act on behalf of his people. So earlier I talked about, I was seeing connections between Judges and Deuteronomy. One of those connections that I saw, so at the end of Joshua's life, this is the book of Joshua, not Judges, but at the end of Joshua's life, he's repeating these same things. You know the Lord who's saved you and delivered you and brought you this far. Even the Lord who's driven out your enemies before you while Joshua was leading them in conquest of the promised land. And he's reminding them, serve the Lord your God only, worship him only. And the people are saying, we will, we will, that's what we'll do. And Joshua says in chapter 23, pardon me, chapter 24, verse 23, after the people are saying, we will, he says, then put away the foreign gods that are among you. And it's kind of a double take. You think out of one side of their mouth, they're saying they will serve the Lord only, and he's reprimanding them. Like Most scholars think the book of Joshua covers a period of 30 years. So from Moses' death to this end of where Joshua is saying this, it's only been a period of roughly 30 years where after Moses has charged them with loving the Lord only and serving no others, that here they are 
with gods that they have among them. Uh, just that kind of foreshadows the destruction that, were, that would happen later in the book of Judges. But similarly, we continually battle idols or gods in our own lives. They don't always look like what Psalm 115 talked about. They have eyes but don't see, ears don't hear. Idols in our own lives can look like anything that we set above uh, God in our lives for wholehearted, undivided devotion and uh, affections. So, uh, and again, on our own, the bad news is we are incapable of loving the Lord with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and in our own might. But the good news is that our deliverance, our salvation, isn't conditioned on our ability to do that. Jesus already did that. He paid that for us. And so we're set free to live in obedience, not set feet to try to earn our deliverance. But. So now verses 6 through 9, our responsibility to the commandment. So our responsibility, I said earlier, is discipleship, or it's to teach it. I'm going to define discipleship quickly. It's teaching ourselves and others with the goal of seeing God for who He is that results in a life of obedience. That's a long way to say teaching ourselves towards spiritual maturity. Spiritual maturity is seeing God for who he is and living in a life of obedience. So again, our convictions inform our conduct. Our right view of God uh, leads to our obedience, not the other way around. And so there's a distinct flow in these verses 6 through 9. First, you know it yourself first. Look at verse 6. Shall be on your heart. So remember the Ten Commandments. God has inscribed his Ten Commandments on stone. Not once, but twice because Moses broke them the first time. And he says, put these commandments in the Ark of the Covenant. So for them, the visual image of God's command was on tablets of stone put in the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant just signified God's presence among them. Moses is saying, no, they shall be on your hearts. Later in Deuteronomy chapter 30, he says, God's commands, this is Deuteronomy 30, 11 through 14, they're not too hard for you, nor are they too far away. They're not up in heaven where you have to say, who's going to go down and get it for us? Nor are they across the sea where you say, who's going to go and bring the commands back to us? He says, God's command it is in your mouth and it is in your heart so that you can do it. So know it yourself first. Because without knowing it ourselves first, we can't go on to teaching it to others. Here he's taught, he says, you shall teach it diligently to your children. I'll talk about teaching your children, but I also want to talk about if you don't have children, you're not off the hook. There's still a command to teach it to others. Uh, Psalm 78, 4 through 8 echoes this. The psalmist, this, uh, he says, we will not hide them from their children. He's talking about the works of the Lord. We will not hide them from their children, but tell, them, but tell to the com coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and His might and the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach their children, that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children, so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments, and that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. Uh, speaking about that Psalm 78 passage in this Deuteronomy 6, 6-9 uh, passage, one author, Derek Kidner, he says about 
Scripture has no room for parental neutrality. If you are a parent, like you're either teaching your kids to live in, in awe of God's commands, or really you're teaching them to live in neglect of God's commands. We already know that before we, we, we are saved, Scripture says we're hostile to God. There's no middle ground. We're not on the fence. We're not born like, oh, maybe he'll turn out good, maybe he'll turn out bad. We're born evil, enemies of God, the, the, the Bible says, enemies of the cross. So as parents, again, Scripture has no room for parental neutrality. Uh, not just parents either. I would say teaching the next generation for those of us that don't have parents. The reason I say that is in Judges, again, Judges chapter 2 talks about how after, it says the nation of Israel was following the Lord while Joshua was alive and the elders of Israel that saw the works the Lord had done. But after that generation passed, it said another generation rose up who didn't know the Lord and they didn't know the wonders that he had done. So there is a lack in generational discipleship, if you will. Uh, back to our passage. Verse 7 uh, gives us a good description of discipleship. You don't need a formal education to teach other people about Jesus. We've been given the Word. Scripture says everything we need for life and godliness is found in the Word. So think of it in these natural rhythms of your life. I'll go through kind of this verse. It says, teach them. You talk of them when you sit at your house. Most of us, when we sit at our house together, is going to be at a mealtime. So I, be intentional and steer conversations to Jesus and seek to draw out heart matters with who you're sitting at the table with, whether they're children or family members or friends. Um, at our house, so we have young kids, and this doesn't always bear much fruit, but every mealtime, we go around the table and say, what was your best part of your day and what was the worst part of your day? And so, again, you don't always get the most spiritual answers, but we're trying to lay groundwork for addressing hurts in life. This person was mean to me, or this happened to me, or to celebrate victories in life. And so that may bear more fruit, and we've already seen some of that now with our school-age kids, and that's exciting to see and encouraging. Um, one of our girls for probably a good year straight, the worst part of her day every day was not getting to swim. So if you have a spiritual lesson on that, come talk to me later. But my wife and I would look at each other. That is a bad part of the day. But uh, that's just an example of intentionally talking about something other than, I don't know, the weather. Uh, he also says, talk about it when you walk by the way. Uh, in our world, not many of us typically walk from point A to point B in all parts of our day. I just see an application here is in the car. Again, be intentional. In uh, a car is great because you have a captive audience. They don't have to be your kids in the back. You could be riding passenger with a friend. They're still a captive audience. You can talk to them or ask them questions. Uh, he says, when you lie down, um, just what, what are you reading? Like, if you're a parent, I thought about story times at night. All kids love stories, especially if it means they get to stay up a little bit later, right? Uh, what are you teaching them about God? You pray with them. Kids learn what we think of God's character in the way that we pray to our Father, Heavenly Father. When you rise, morning times, pray for the day ahead. Let them see you prioritizing Scripture and prayer in your own life, whether that's your wife or your spouse that sees you prioritize Scripture and prayer in your life. Kids see that. Friends, a roommate. Uh, that. That's just your day right there, rhythms of life. Um, 
And discipleship isn't just to the family. I know I talked there about parents and kids and families. It's not just given to the family. Think about all the opportunities, like in the prayer list that we had there in the bulletin uh, that Doug was praying about. We have the privilege of Awanas or Sunday schools or nursery um, uh, greeters, deacons. We say that if we're saying discipleship is helping others grow in spiritual maturity to see God rightly and to obey God more, then it's not a stretch to say that discipleship is like the main focus of our church, the gathering of believers, is to spur one another on to grow in the grace and knowledge of God. So spiritual maturity. So we're discipling one another in everything that we do. So what roles in the church that you serve in? Like how do those roles serve to disciple somebody else? How do we handle um, our vehicles? Or how do we handle our finances? Or how do we handle parenting? There are just so many opportunities to point people to Jesus and towards Christ-likeness. Verses 8 and 9 here, he talks about a sign on your hand, frontlets on your eyes or your forehead, and then writing them on the doorposts of your house and gates. The takeaway here is that God's word and his command are to be with us at all times. On your hands, let your actions be directed by God's commands. On your eyes or your forehead, let your thoughts and motives be directed by God's commands. On your doorposts and gates, let your household be in submission to God's commands. There's nothing you do and no part, no part of your life that should not be directed by God's law. It should mark every area of your life. So they really did have these things that they would tie on their hands in the Old Testament or tie on their foreheads. They called them phylacteries. Uh, and in the New Testament, they most famously show up. Matthew 23, Jesus reprimands the Pharisees and they say, your, scripture, your phylacteries or your scripture holding boxes are so large, you make them large so that they look very impressive but you're not making an effort to actually abide by the scriptures or the commands that you're parading around on your, on your scripture-holding boxes on your hand or on your forehead. So if we think of God, his law and his command informing our heads, our hearts, and our hands, they were good at the hands and the head part, but they'd miss the heart part. And in the same way with us, we can impart good knowledge, we can show people how to do good works, but it's easy if, if, we're not, if we're not pointing their hearts to Jesus, right? Our right view of Jesus leads to our obedience. If we're, if we're missing the heart of discipleship, it's doing us no good. And so just some other ways to think about discipleship in everyday life. Uh, our church is a great place for discipleship. But even a church is just can only be a supplement for what happens in your life, everyday life. Because... Most of us are only here a couple times a week, maybe you know, two or three times a week uh, involved in discipleship activities or teaching or listening. Uh, but Sunday mornings, think like the preaching ministry at EMB is crucial to discipleship of our whole congregation. We're all sitting together under the word of God that's preached and we do it regularly. Our Sunday school classes are similar. Smaller groups maybe lend more towards uh, sharing ideas and thoughts and back and forth and encouraging one another how we can uh, disciple each other or become more Christ-like. But if you're only reading the Bible or only talking about spiritual things or only praying or only kind of holding your life up to the x-ray or the MRI machine of Scripture and saying, how am I 
doing and living in obedience to God. If that's only happening once a week, it's it won't work for you because there's not enough. There's too many other things in your world that are battling for your affections, especially. Um, I should, I was going to say especially now, but that's not true. It's it's been the same for. There's probably been. I can't even think. For generations and generations, there's always busyness in life. So it's not true that especially now is the case. Uh, I just want to say that it can't be, discipleship in your life and in others' life cannot be the sole job of the church. The church is a great tool to use. And we try to, the church has great ministries for discipleship, but it can't be the only one. I was reminded of one uh, when I was studying for this. So... uh, our kids' classes, we use this curriculum uh, through fifth grade, and the kids will come home with a sheet that talks about what they went over that day in Sunday school. And the great part of that, on the back side of that sheet, it says family time. And if I'm honest, like I hadn't really noticed that before, and so I've, uh, I've not taken advantage of that tool that we provide for family discipleship. It's got uh, the Bible passage that was taught, key themes that were taught, question and answers, just a way that you can engage your kids with what they heard in the Sunday school class. Um, I'm always personally convicted by Ephesians 6, 4. It says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Uh, Paul is not suggesting I do that. Paul is not telling me that would be a good idea. That's what we call an imperative. It's a command to do that. Right? If I'm not training them up in the way of the Lord, they're training up to neglect the fear of the Lord and the way of the Lord. Remember I said earlier, the Bible has no room for parental neutrality. Uh, in our church, another way we try to, fil- to facilitate discipleship is through our life group ministry. Uh, these are smaller groups. We gather together within our church, not necessarily at the church building, but within our church, smaller groups that gather together where we practically seek to live out our church's values of gospel people mission. We strive to be word-formed people so that our relationships are impacted and our culture is engaged and the generosity of God is known. Um, and so I'll shamelessly appeal to you to get involved in our life group ministry. You can join an existing group. There are new groups that are forming that you could help, that you could join. And if you're interested in leading one, like we would love to meet with you. The, uh, the elders or Roger with the discipleship ministry or the Friesens with our life group coordinator position. Like we're eager to see our life group ministry grow because we know that just the Sunday morning corporate discipleship time of hearing the word preached isn't enough to, to, uh, to, uh, to counter the other things in your life that are pulling you in all directions. So uh, I wanted to share something I... Uh, came across an excerpt from Pastor Mark Dever. He wrote a book called Discipling, How to Help Others Follow Jesus. And he gave four ways to think about making disciples. I shared this at a discipleship meeting uh, a month or so ago, and it was just an encouragement to me. Four ways to think about making disciples. Teach, correct, model, love. So teach. If a disciple, the word disciple just means learner, follower, student. So here in the church... We want to be clear about who we're following and what we're a student of. It's Jesus Christ, as he's laid out for us in all of Scripture. So we teach. We correct. 
part of learning, whatever discipline it is in school, whatever you're studying, part of learning is knowing that there's a right way and that there's a wrong way. And so that we're thinking of correcting, we're not building disciples of Jesus Christ if we can't clearly talk about sin in our own lives and in others. So teach, correct, model. This involves living out the Christian life before others. Uh, so practicing what you preach what you teach, modeling, and then love. Love is the overarching motivation behind discipleship. Remember the greatest commands. Love the Lord your God and love others. Even, I think it was two weeks ago in Colossians, in our sermon series, Colossians 1, 28 through 29. Maybe Mark Dever got his four things from this because it's almost the same. It says, Colossians 1, 28 and 29, Paul writes, Him we proclaim, warning everyone, and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works in me. So we are clear about what we teach, Christ, who we teach, him we proclaim. We warn, we're laying out the need for Christ and for repentance. Again, that's not just for non-believers, the need for Christ and repentance. All of us, even once we become believers, when we're saved, there's not... The need for Christ and the need for repentance doesn't stop. Uh, I was, so Gary Crandall had written a book called True Discipleship. I don't know if this was his quote or if he was quoting somebody else, but in the book he says, as believers, our need for discipleship doesn't stop at salvation any more than a baby's need to mature stops at, con- uh, at conception. Yeah, uh, and it was just a good picture like it's a never-ending process that will not be done we will not be mature in Christ in this Colossians passage it says that we may present everyone mature in Christ we will not be mature in Christ until we see Christ face to face it's a never-ending process so there's the need for Christ repentance we teach instruction about Christ our goal is to mature believers in Christ and it's a tiresome never-ending work that we cannot accomplish on our own It's only through Christ in us, as Paul says, with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. And so to conclude, I'm going to circle back to my opening illustration, uh, but this time let's look at the example of the Jewish faith and how it was subverted by a lack of proper teaching. Uh, And we're going to look at it through the eyes of the self-proclaimed best of all Jews, right? The Pharisee of Pharisees, Paul, who says in Philippians 3 that he was a blameless Pharisee Righteous under the law. Paul knew the Shema. Love the Lord, or, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord with all your heart, soul, and mind. He knew the passage that we're looking at today about teaching it to the next generations. So how did the religious leaders of the Jews, the Pharisees, how did God's chosen, the religious leaders of the Jews, God's chosen people, find themselves in opposition to Jesus Christ during his earthly ministry and then even persecuting his church after his ascension? It's because somewhere along the way, It became more about obedience to God's laws than about a love for God. Remember, our obedience to God doesn't feed our right view of God. Our right view of God feeds our obedience for God. So when it becomes more about obedience and good works, then this is what happens, what we saw with Jewish leaders, the Jewish uh, of the day. And so, uh, like has been said during our sermon series from Colossians, heresies in the church find their origin in an incorrect view of Jesus Christ. So thinking about that, all of the Old Testament, God's law and his prophets, look forward to Christ's coming to atone for sin and make a way for sinners to have access to God and to his kingdom. But the lie that creeps in, 
and it has for all time, then as well as today, is that surely we can gain that access to Christ or to God and His kingdom by doing enough good to appease God's judgment or at the very least doing more good than the other guy. That's the lie that, we, that creeps in. So for the Pharisees, this meant treating God's law as supreme even as the means to a right relationship with God. They even went so far as to create their own stricter laws that would keep them from encroaching on God's law, right? Because they saw it as the supreme. This is what we all do if we see God's law as the key to his kingdom. It's classic idolatry, treating something, God's good gift, as a lowercase g God in his place. But after Christ met Paul face to face, he completely changed Paul's life. Look at how Paul's perspective on the law changed. This is in Romans chapter 7. I didn't call this the purpose of the law, but it is another purpose of the law. Romans chapter 7, Paul says that the purpose of the law is to reveal our sin, to show us that we are powerless and incapable of obeying the law's requirements. The law is there to prove to us that we are lawbreakers. And so Paul says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? It's a body of death because we are sinners and sin leads to death apart from God. No amount of inner determination or self-motivation is going get to get us to obedience of God or get us to God's kingdom or right relationship with God. Uh, it's an impossible standard. False teachings invent ways of helping you meet that standard. However, Jesus Christ met the standard for you and offers freedom from the bondage of sin and death. And so Paul can answer his own question, who will rescue me from this body of death? He says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. He's the one that does it. So you don't have to be stuck in an endless cycle of trying harder and doing more good works, and then inevitably failing, and then feeling guilty about failing, and then making the same promises that I won't fail those ways again. And you just get stuck uh, in the same sin, guilt, work cycle. Instead, look to Christ. Yes, God gave us the law, but God at the same time provided the atonement for breaking the law. That's unbelievable. Romans says so as to be just and the one who justifies. He gives us the law, but he also provides atonement for us breaking the law, and he welcomes us into his rest. So the spiritual journey of the Christian today mirrors the physical journey of the Israelites from bondage to deliverance to freedom and rest and blessing. Again, Christ is the greater blessing. So, to conclude, the conclusion. Uh, in his sovereignty, God chose to use his people, broken and sinful ourselves, to call broken and sinful people to him. Paul says that we get to, we get to serve as ambassadors for Christ, working in the ministry of reconciliation. That's 2 Corinthians 5. We are representatives of the king, ambassadors. We are representatives of the king to a world that doesn't see him, can't see him. And we have the amazing opportunity to share his grace for reconciliation. So thinking through discipleship, making for the goal of maturing believers to be more like Christ. Who has God placed in your life that you can disciple? Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Again, your word is truth. I know that your word sanctifies us. Lord, we thank you that uh, you did give us your law, Lord. You have standards. Uh, but we can't live up to that law. We're lawbreakers, Lord. But it's only... It's, you provided atonement for that, Lord. That's amazing to me. And you say that 
you view us as righteous or justified, as if we hadn't sinned, Lord, and it's only because of Jesus Christ. We thank you for that. We praise you for uh, your word uh, and how your plan of redemption is seen even in Deuteronomy, just like we see it in the New Testament, Lord. We love you. Uh, I pray that you'd open our eyes to discipleship opportunities around us. It's in your name we pray. Amen.